6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. Isaiah 63 is going to talk a great deal about Jesus Christ's bloodstains as he fights for his people in Isaiah 63. And it also ties to Revelation 14.20. The idea of being rolled in blood is very vivid as we get to Isaiah 63. And then the burning and the fuel of fire and all of that is reminiscent of Isaiah 66 and Joel 2. We're going to talk enough about that later when it gets much more of the main theme, so I won't badger it now, other than just to mention that some of these same patterns are emerging in the language of Isaiah early here. Verse 5, For every battle of the warrior is confused with noise, the garments rolled in blood, and this shall be the burning field. Those three, the structure of that sentence is very much the structure of those prophecies about Armageddon. But all of this is sort of rushing through lightly because we're going to get plenty of this before Isaiah 2. But we're now going to encounter, as Isaiah does, two verses that leap out at you as two of the most elegant verses in the Old Testament. They are rich with uh, significance. By the way, a couple of things. Uh, when you're in Israel, you'll come across the idea that one reason they did, the Jews did not accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah is because he didn't bring them their temple, you see. And it's interesting, they're setting themselves up for one who is going to be accepted as the Messiah who will bring them their temple, okay? But part of that whole idea is today they argue that the Messiah isn't the Son of God, he's just a great leader. That's their con- the conception is altered. The idea that the Messiah of Israel is to be the Son of God is clear in the Psalm. Psalm 2 makes, hammers that home. Well, all through. You can, you, can, you can make a whole study of the predictions of the Messiah. The foot, I call it the footprints of the Messiah in the Old Testament that he indeed is the Son of God. One of those passages right here before us. Verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah. You've heard it a dozen times. You've seen it on Christmas cards. And it's tragic that sometimes the most familiar verses are the ones we skip over because we don't really catch everything that's there. Let's try to look at it freshly. For unto us... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. Let's just start with that. It's very typical in Hebrew poetry to have two ideas in juxtaposition. You and I think of poetry in sense of sound or meter. And the Hebrew does too occasionally, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis in Hebrew poetry is the juxtaposition of ideas. You notice that a lot in the, all through the Proverbs. They're all structured that way. They, they seem to say the same thing twice, two different ways. Sometimes they're the same thing twice, and sometimes they're the opposites. But there are always two ideas in juxtaposition. Psalms, you see that too, but the Proverbs probably is the most vivid, particularly in the English. Well, here you have, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Very Jewish kind of sounding phrase, but recognize that's not the same thing. For unto us a child is born, that speaks of his humanity. For unto us a son is given. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? That he gave us his only begotten son. It's right here in the first few sentences. A child is born, a son is given. It's an echo in a sense of Isaiah 7.14 that we spent time on last time. The virgin birth. Then it goes on. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
When did that happen? When did Jesus Christ have the government on his shoulder? The only thing I remember on his shoulder was a cross, huh? When did Jesus Christ have the government on his shoulder? Don't think he did. That's yet future. And be on the alert for the heresies that are again emerging in the Christian church. These are heresies that almost destroyed human history in the last 19 centuries. The idea that God is through with Israel. Nonsense. Those arguments should have ended on May 14th of 1948. God is not through with Israel. Paul spent three chapters in Romans hammering that home. That Israel is set aside temporarily. Israel is blinded until the fullness of Gentiles be come in. Come in where? Remember Romans 11.25. We quote it all the time. For blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? The church. Come in where? And as I've mentioned several times, but I'll just hammer it again. I believe God's dealing with Israel and the church is mutually exclusive. Church was not started until Israel had rejected the kingdom. The church will be complete before God once again takes up Israel. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back twice, once for his church and once for Israel. He's coming back to rule the world through Israel. Strange idea. There are people around selling all kinds of heresies that the promises to Israel devolve on the church. Because Israel rejected her Messiah, she forfeited those promises, and those promises now are in the church, and they speak of spiritual Israel and so forth. Seventy-three times in the New Testament, Israel is mentioned always nationally. Always, well, there's one that's maybe a little gray, but 72 of the 73 clearly nationally, national Israel. Jesus Christ speaks twice in the seven letters of seven churches of those that would call themselves Jews and are not. Those that would make the church Israel, which is not. Paul divides the world into three categories, Jews, Gentiles, and the church. If you're in the church, you're neither Jew nor Gentile. You're in his body. Don't get confused on that point. Jesus Christ says, those who say they are Jews and are not are the synagogue of Satan. That's Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. He says the same thing again in Revelation 3, chapter, verse 9. So be on the alert for some strange ideas that are widely sold, widely sold on TV and radio and tapes and books. Don't be conned by the Reconstructionists or the Dominion Theologists. If you want to do your homework in this area, one of the outstanding books is Hal Lindsey's Road to Holocaust. Those doctrines led to the Holocaust in Europe, and those doctrines are going to lead to the Holocaust again. It's going to make the last one look like a small beginning. You often see on, in Israel, never again. Sorry, wrong. Daniel in chapter 12 says there would be a time of trouble, yet future, that the world had never seen never would see again. And Jesus quoted that as being yet future from the, time, from the abomination of desolation. In his private briefing to his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25, the secret briefing he gave to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and the key, the key verse of that is verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Highly technical thing, but learn what it is. Do your homework. That ushers in a time of trouble that the world has never seen to that day. It's interesting, of course, Jesus was crucified uh, 38 years later. The Roman legions under Titus Vespasian leveled the city. It's interesting that Caligula ordered Petronius to put his image in the Holy of Holies. He tried. That would have been the abomination of desolation. Petronius found out the reaction of the Jews and decided not to do it. Caligula ordered his death when he found out. He obviously was angry. Caligula died. The message at sea that got to Judea on Caligula's death preceded, by some strange set of circumstances, the, the, the order for Petronius' death. 
And so he never was executed. But it's interesting that the Romans tried to execute an abomination of desolation. Those days never pulled it off. Abomination of desolation never happened. It's going to happen. And television coverage is predicted. News at 11. Huh? Verse 6. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, that's a strange idea. Is that a New Testament idea? You bet it is. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. I've mentioned this before, but I'll keep it in front of us because there are those that are going to try to confuse you on this subject. When Gabriel is telling Mary about the birth of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1, in verse 32, he says, Gabriel tells Mary, He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's not the throne of God the Father that he's on now. It's the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob for a thousand years. Is that what it says? Forever. Not ever. Not ever. To take Candle's version, huh? And of his kingdom there shall be no end. What's the thousand years? Well, a thousand years is the, the interval between the resurrections and the interval during which Satan is bound. Different issue. How long, is, how long does Jesus Christ reign over the house of Jacob? And why is it called the house of Jacob? So you don't get confused about Israel. It's 12 tribes. Peter wrote his letters, check them, to the 12 tribes of Israel. There are no lost 10 tribes. Anyway, enough of that. Back to <laughs> chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Father of Eternity, to be precise, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Some people say there's four titles because they say it's Wonderful Counselor. That sounds neat because it makes a neat little package and there's some aspects to it, except they're both nouns. Wonderful, Counselor, and so on. When was Jesus Christ called wonderful? Boy, gotcha, huh? Judges 13. Judges 13. This is where you murmur and say, oh yes, like you remember, see? Okay. You all know the story of Samson, or at least part of the story of Samson. His parents were told supernaturally beforehand that he'd be born. Manoah's father gets a special announcement. Verse 8, Manoah entreated the Lord, said, O my Lord, let the man of God whom thou didst send come again unto us, and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. And God hearkened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. The woman made haste and ran, told her husband, Behold, the man hath appeared to me and who came unto me the other day. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said, Art thou the man who spoke to the woman? He said, I am. Interesting phrase, I am. I'm always alert to that. Because that's the voice of the burning bush. Not necessarily here, it may turn out to be, but I'm just be alert to that. Because when Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. We miss what he said, but the Pharisees didn't. They tried to stone him because he was declaring to be the voice of the burning bush. And Manoah said, Now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child, and how shall we do unto him? The angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Of all that I have said unto the woman, let her beware. She may not eat of anything that cometh of the vine, neither let drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. All that I command did her shall uh, let her observe. And Manoah said unto the angel, Lord, I pray thee, let us detain thee until we shall have made uh, ready a kid for thee. And the angel Lord said unto Manoah, Though thou detain me, I shall not eat of thy food, 
And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? That's kind of interesting. The angel normally would say, Gee, don't do me honor. I'll worship the Lord only. But this angel is interesting. It's like the one in Joshua 5. He allows a certain degree of deference here, doesn't he? Interesting. The angel Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is, what? Wonderful. As my suggestion, my conjecture, not a hard sell, but I believe that this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And it goes on. You can read the rest of the story of Samson on your own. The name called Wonderful. Now you can, you can take that many ways. Another way to say, that, another answer, if, when was Jesus Christ called Wonderful? I'd say the first few verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, capital, title. Who is it? Jesus Christ. All things are made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator of the universe. You know, in our mind's eye, we often visualize, well, that's God the Father. Somehow, Jesus, we see him as the Redeemer. Boy, he's, he's the creator himself. It says so clearly in John chapter 1. He was crucified on a cross of wood, yet he made the hill on which it stood. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. Boy, that's easy. Lots of places that you can point to Jesus Christ as counselor, but let me give you an unusual one. Proverbs chapter 8. And this is perhaps a little speculative, but it's uh, conjectural. But the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs extols wisdom. The real subject of chapter 8 of Proverbs speaks of wisdom, but it personifies it in the first person singular. And there are some scholars that feel it is idiomatic of Jesus Christ. But in any case, he is the counselor on it goes. I mean, there's many places that that is expressed. The mighty God, the word is El. There's many places that the, the, the title of God, the name El, El this or El that, alludes to Jesus Christ. But we've just read one of them last week. Remember? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and call his name what? Emmanuel. Okay. And that turns out anyway, that's the, the mighty God. Now, the next one's a little confusing. The everlasting Father. On the one hand, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. At the same time, John also in his first three verses of his gospel makes clear that there's distinction between them. What that translation should say is the Father of eternity. The Father of eternity. You and I have no capacity to imagine or even conceptualize eternity. And as I've mentioned several times, but I'll remind you, you know, we all live in timelines. We tend to think of time as linear and absolute. Because we do our little timelines in school, on the blackboard. We start at the left, go to the right with a little line, a birth, a death, whatever. And so when we come to conceptions like eternity, we think of a line that starts at infinity over there and goes to infinity over there. We think of eternity as having lots of time. Well, that's tragic because that's not what eternity is all about. Eternity is being outside the time domain altogether. In modern physics, we know that time is a physical property. You tell me your mass and your acceleration and what gravitational field you're in, and, you ha- and we can relate to your time. In the absence of that, there is no time. We talked about that in Genesis. God created the world in six days. Were they 24-hour days? I don't know. 
But in, as in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, it clearly he intends us to understand them as 24-hour days. Who's 24-hour days? God's. Who's around? Adam wasn't. Didn't show up until day five, or day, uh, day six, excuse me, right? That's when the clocks sink. So on our clock, it's 15 billion years, or pick your number, and God's clock, it's six days. So the whole issue of how many days does it has to do with an ignorance of Einstein's theory of relativity. It's relative. Tell me the mass of God and his, the gravitational field he's in, and we can talk about his timeline. See, that's our own ignorance. You talk about fate versus free will. Are we predestined or do we have choice? Hey, that issue only comes because we're in, within a half a dimension of time. We live in three spatial dimensions, height, width, length, and a, a half a dimension of time. I say half a dimension because we can move forward and look back. We can't look forward or move back. It's half a dimension. Right? How many of you remember tomorrow? <laughs> if I get any hands, I want to see you later, right? <laughs> But see, the whole paradox that we think of as a paradox, because we're within that time domain. If you've had any training in paradox resolution, the way you knew that is you go up one scale, the meta system, if you will. And that, that problem goes away once you realize you're outside, that God is outside time altogether. And without the benefit of Einstein's uh, general theory and without the benefit of modern physics, H.A. Ironside many years ago dramatized exactly this issue with what is now known rhetorically in the field as Ironside's door. He, he, he hypothesizes that he's going down a hallway, sees a door. Over the door it says, whosoever will may enter. He looks at it. He has total free will. He can go through the door or not. He decides to. Goes through the door. On the other side of the door, he encounters a banquet room. There's an elegant table set. There's a place. And he goes and he looks, there's a, a, a place card with his name on it. They're expecting him. Blows him away. He looks back at the door he just came through, and over it says, on his side, it says, foreordained before the foundation of the world. Two sides of the same door. One is seen from within the time domain, one from outside. No paradox, not, from, not in those terms. When did God first start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. You and I have no ability to grasp that. Paul tried hard. He spent six chapters in Ephesians trying to get it through. But there's no way that we can really appreciate that. The Father of Eternity, a title of Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace. We're familiar with that one. For lots of reasons. Romans 5.1. Is your verse on that? Or Luke 2.14. What do the angels say? I heard some commentary. I haven't checked it. They say that angels never sing. Only the redeemed can sing. Well, maybe. I don't really buy that because uh, uh, there was one angel that had elegant singing voice. And we'll encounter him in Isaiah 14. There's a chariot bim that got into a lot of trouble. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. Zeal of the Lord of hosts. The jealousy of the Lord of hosts. And from here, if you like, you can do a study of sanctified jealousy. Paul talks about that. His jealousy for you as believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For those of you who want to start on that tra uh, trip and go down that road. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We see that on Christmas cards. It always intrigues me. What, what's such a popular verse, and yet, boy, is it 
pregnant with insight in terms of God's whole plan, God's overview. In two little verses, from the virgin birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to the government of eternity. Interesting. This perhaps also amplifies what Jesus Christ said when he said, All power is given unto me. We read that in Matthew 28, near the end of Matthew's Gospel. We probably have no conception of how far that really reaches. But moving on, verse 8. The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it lighteth upon Israel. And again, you have those two words. When Jacob's name was changed, it's interesting how in the Scripture, when people's names are changed, they generally stick. When Abraham was changed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, from that point on, that's the way they're always referred to. Jacob, not so. When he was in the flesh... They called him Jacob. On those rare occasions when he was really walking by the Spirit, he was called Israel as, a human, as, an, as an individual. It's always interesting. We always have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Praise God for that. If God can justify Jacob, there's hope for all of us. <laughs> the Lord sent, unto, sent a word unto Jacob, and it lighteth upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim, and the inhabitant of Samaria. See, again, Ephraim's used as a synecdoche, that is, a, as a generic for the northern kingdom, and, uh, and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them to cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him, Ed Rezin being the king of Assyria, and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. See, this is Isaiah again continuing the, this uh, dirge of the judgment coming on the northern kingdom. We find a phrase then at the end of verse 12, For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Don't misunderstand that phrase. It's not that his hand is stretched out for saving. It's his hand is stretched out for smiting. We tend to reach that, you know, that his hand is stretched out. We generally somehow impute to that, you know, our New Testament perspective. No, no, no. In this case, it's a judgment thing. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Don't visualize a hand of grace. Visualize a clenched fist, if you will, or something, if you want to get the idiomatic. Now, the reason I emphasize this, that phrase occurs four times. You'll see in the English the, the stanzas of Isaiah. We'll see this in verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. The first four verses of chapter 10 really seem to be uh, more properly conceived as part of chapter 9. Bear in mind again, chapter divisions are man's addition about the 14th century, 15th century. And another little ground rule you'll discover as you study the Bible that more often than not, the chapter divisions are in the wrong place. If you're reading a critical chapter, pick it up a verse or two from the previous chapter. It'll be instructive. Even such famous passages like 1 Corinthians 13, start a verse early. We're going to see that in Isaiah 53, the, the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. You really start two or three verses earlier in chapter 52. So recognize, always keep in mind that chapter divisions are man's editing and often done with an incomplete perspective. So they're just, they're convenience, but they're nothing more than references. Don't attach too much significance to the chapter breaks. Anyway, we're down at verse 12. For the people turneth not unto him who smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. 
And we're going to compare this to Isaiah 19 when we get there. I won't badger it here. But there is, verse 15, one of these little hints that's going to be meaningful to you, those of you that are students of the book of Revelation. Notice verse 15. The ancient and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. These are idioms that are strange to our ears because they emerge from a different cultural background. But again, the book of Revelation is in code. The writer of the book of Revelation assumes you have a full command of the rest of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. Every phrase in the book of Revelation is in code. Every one of those codes are explained somewhere else in the Scripture. And one of the evidences of the integrity of the design of these 66 books is that if you study the book of Revelation thoroughly, competently, it will take you into every book in the Bible. Every book in the Bible. But when we encounter these phrases in the book of Revelation, it sounds strange or bizarre. It's only because we're not familiar with the idioms of the Old Testament. And as we go through Isaiah, we're going to pick up several that will really give you a totally different insight in the book of Revelation. Don't misunderstand me. I t- every place that I have screwed up, and there have been many of them. If you listen to my early tapes, I make a number of mistakes. Every place I've made a mistake is because I didn't take it literally enough. By now you've gotten to know me pretty well. You know I'm a nut on this. I really am an extremist in that sense. Even to the encryption thing we talked about last time. Every place in the scripture I see a prophet read another prophet. He always takes it literally. When Daniel reads Jeremiah, he takes him literally. And I've sold that for 20 years. In my early tapes in Revelation, I talk about Revelation 17, 18. And I'm guilty of, indeed, there are some allegorical aspects to Revelation 17, 18. But the literalness of the city of Babylon being rebuilt, I was blindsided on. I gave intellectual assent to the possibility, but I, I didn't really embrace it. And how stupid, if I'd done my homework on Isaiah 13 and 14 and, Re- and Jeremiah 15, 51... Uh, I'm quickly, of course, redoing those masters. But it's interesting, whenever I've made a mistake, it's because I didn't take it literally enough. And when we get, we're short, we'll we'll get to uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 again here shortly. It's going to be a grabber in terms of what Saddam Hussein has been up to and what the real significance of the Persian Gulf situation is. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.